Welcome back to part two of the Scott Shaw interview. Let's continue. Also, another cartoon I really loved as a kid, and actually the new Fred and Barney, Richie Rich, and then this next one, Muppet Babies. I mean, I watched all that stuff as a kid. Formative for me, because I didn't really read the Hartree comics, but I watched the cartoons. But let's talk a little bit about the Muppet Babies. Now, that went from 1984 to 1991. I love that there was like old black and white clips of old movies like mixed in to it. Like that was actually, I think, where I actually figured out that there was a Universal Monsters because it would have stuff like that. Tell us about your involvement in the Muppet Babies cartoon. I was always a fan of the Muppets, but I really became a fan of the Muppets once I was working on that show. We never worked directly with Jim Henson. Michael Frith was the main guy that we worked with, who was one of the guys that had been with Henson's company for years, and he was an outstanding illustrator himself. Lots of kids' books and lots of the Sesame Street books and things like He kind of did the ones that Jack Davis didn't do there when they first were new. Anyway, we would get very thoughtful notes. We were dealing with people who'd never worked for Saturday morning, who'd never worked for the cheaper, tawdrier aspects of kids' entertainment. By the way, when Sesame Street came out, I was in college, and I'd lay in bed all day. On Saturday, they'd show all of them for the week. And I was convinced this is going to change animation forever. Every show is going to be in a completely different style. No, that didn't happen. I wound up at Hanna-Barbera, so there. Anyway, the Muppet thing, first of all, we had a producer who understood. He never said this. He wasn't the kind of guy that'd make little speeches. But essentially, he made it clear that a good idea is a good idea. It doesn't matter where it came from. There was a season, for example, where he told everybody, I think it was the second season we had an hour's worth to do for each week. A half hour showed an hour when we got our first Emmy. And the ratings were good, too. He was buying springboards. He was paying, I think, $100 for springboards. He would pay it out of his own pocket, but some of the assistant gophers were getting him. They became writers. One of the editors did him. And I became a writer from that, too. And I had been writing anyway, but it was the first time somebody said, hey, we'd like you to write this. And what it was was, this was a good example, too, of everything. I mean, I switched around. I was also the overseer of the model sheets. By the way, Chris Sanders, the guy created Leo and Stitch, I was his first boss. He's still speaking to me, so I guess it was okay. Sounds like it was a positive experience. Yeah, but this was fairly far in on Muppet Babies. And this was at the same time that Marvel had taken on a ton of work relating to toys. And they also made a deal with King Features to do this, in my opinion, terrible show that was kind of a ripoff in a way of Masters of the Universe called Defenders of the Earth, I think. And it was kind of like all their classic quasi-superheroes, Mandrake the Magician, and I forget who. Flash Gordon was in it, too. If they were smart, they would have added Popeye. They were all fighting Ming the Merciless, and they all had teenage sidekicks, and it was just horrible. Body at the studio assumed that, oh, we have the rights to Flash Gordon. Now, they didn't seem to understand how these contracts work. No, it's for this particular project. You have the rights to Flash Gordon. So they wrote, and it went through a script that was all Muppet Baby stuff based on one specific Flash Gordon serial. And so we get the whole thing boarded, and the producer gets a call, and he calls me. He says, guess what? We can't use that movie because we never signed for it. So he said, but we have something you might like even better. 
And it was Gene Autry's Radio Ranch in the Phantom Empire. It was a sci-fi Western. Radio Ranch, where he broadcast his radio show from, is being attacked by creatures and people who live at the center of the earth, who have robots wearing metal cowboy hats, and they're coming up to the surface, and then they're going out and doing bad stuff, and then going back down. And it was so much better than Flash Gordon. There was so much great corny stuff in there. Sanguli would have worn himself out making jokes about this thing. So, I mean, even down to the fact they're going to Planet X, so I just had a big planet with an X on it. And that was my first official job as a writer. I'd been writing at Hanna-Barbera, but it was just mainly gags and stuff like that, punching up. I wrote a Smurf script that got heavily rewritten because I wrote it way too long. Because I was writing all the instructions to the board man. That's not how we do it. It's like, well, I'm a board man. I figure I always would have appreciated if somebody told me how they'd like it staged. Anyway, I wrote a little, but that was the first one that my work really kind of got on the end of that. That's pretty cool. So the black and white movies that they would splice in with Muppet Babies, they had to get licenses to do that? Yeah, but a lot of it was just done on a handshake with, uh, I mean... We got to use the stuff from the second Indiana Jones movie just because all those directors and Henson were all pals. And I've heard, I don't know if this is the truth, but I've heard that that's the reason they've never been formally introduced on home video. I was going to ask that because you can only get it like in bad quality on YouTube or something. Yeah, or Comic-Con. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Bootleg. Yeah, because you can't get it. And I was thinking probably because of that license stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... We had Ghostbusters. I boarded the very first Star Wars episode. The one I enjoyed the most was this was back when our story editor was Jeff Scott, who was Mo Howard's grandson. So at the time, it changed after that significantly, but his family was more or less in control of everything. He got us the rights to use the Three Stooges. And I do a board where it was Fozzie bear in a pie fight with the three stooges the footage from one wasn't enough i got to take i think there are three or four three stooges the pie fights i got to like bastardize all of them and cut them apart and i thought god when did i get to work with the three stooges this is absolutely the greatest thing ever i once had a dream my wife woke me up because laughing what are you laughing i said i dreamt the three stooges came to visit me and all i kept saying is but you're dead <laughs> <laughs> but you're dead. It can't be real. But, you know, Muppet Babies was great because a Generation X kid like me could actually see like old 30s, 40s, 50s movie footage. And then for me, it was like a gateway to try to find out what that stuff was all about. Well, that's the thing. We aimed at the kids who are aspirational in terms of when I was a kid, for example, get Mad Magazine. I didn't know what the political stuff was. I started reading the paper so I wouldn't know who these people were. I mean, the dummies are just going to go, well, that's funny. So if you're smart, you're going to write it on a number of levels. The Muppet Babies episodes I love the most, and I didn't even work on these, are the ones where they go to the art museum. I don't know if you remember, but they actually have like some <laughs> chirons in some scenes where it says who actually owns the rights to this. And the one I like the most is where they talk about the history of cartoons. Love cartoons. You know the one. And they're all dressed up as Popeye and all. That almost makes me cry. Yeah. It actually gets me emotional because that's like the foundation of my pop cultural curiosity. I think Muppet Babies was that because I was like six when it came out and I was like, 
I need to find out who all these characters are. And that was like the beginning for me to be curious about old Hollywood and all sorts of stuff. After a certain point, the producer just started giving me song sequences because I like doing those because they just give you a song and say, here, come up with the visuals. And the one that I thought was the most successful that I did was the one where Gonzo was singing about being a semi-weirdo and we kind of parodies of a lot of Magritte paintings. My producer suggested, he says, why don't you take a look at Magritte? That might give you some ideas. But his name is Bob Richardson. He's still around. And he was like a guy that kind of, without intentionally doing it, he kind of set how I should be if I ever got the job as producer. But he was constantly in fights with management about deadlines and stuff because he said, wait a second, we're expected to make this thing good. It's Jim Hansen. The second show that got canceled after, I think, two episodes because we did it on the fly and it was terrible. It's called Little Muppet Monsters. I'm on YouTube, but it was a real poorly thought out thing to extend the brand, but it just felt artificial as hell. Yeah, I remember even like the Wolfman and all the old Dracula footage, all that stuff. It was all introduced to me through Muppet Babies. All right, so then 1987, Popeye and Son. Why was it only 13 episodes? Because it was Popeye and Son. (laughs) That's probably the most loathed cartoon ever in existence, other than that new one that King Features is doing. Because, I mean, they got Bobby London to do character sketches and rejected them. That's how oblivious H&B and CBS were to it. I was a writer by that time. And I submitted, I don't know, maybe a dozen springboards. Actually, no, not only springboards, but I think three or four scripts. And each one would just come back on the script, scrawled across, it goes too far. Because it's like I thought, well, for example, one of my thought. Well, Popeye can't be punching people. And they said that if it was something that the standards and practices said was a non-imitatable action, they might consider it. So I had a story that I was really pleased with where Bluto does something to Popeye's spinach patch, thinking he's going to kill all the spinach. But instead, it makes it into super spinach. And when Popeye eats it, he's kind of like the whole. Then they both eat it. And in the show, Bluto was a used car salesman. So I wrote it so it happened. So then they're having a fight, trying to hit each other with used cars. <laughs> and they hate, they do that. Well, neither can kids, shouldn't that? No, you can't. That goes too far. I mean, I had one set at the circus. I thought, okay, if you can't be punching people, yeah, that's aggressive. But they didn't seem to want anything going on. And the one that finally made it through was one on the Jeep. And I had the whole Jeep take place in the fourth or fifth dimension. I forget which dimension. And they said, no, it can't be that. Kids don't know what the fifth dimension is. I said, neither do we. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know either. But it's a great concept to introduce. Yeah. And it was all about Popeye's son is going to his first prom, junior prom, and he buys an orchid for somebody. And the Jeep grabs the orchid because the Jeep eats orchids. And he's chasing him. And the Jeep just goes into a portal. and. He jumps in after him. So it all took place in Sweet Haven, and it was just horrible. And I'll never forget, I was at the table read, and Don Messick, famous voice guy, sitting there, and he looks up and he goes, what the fuck is a Jeep? So nobody was that happy about the show, obviously. So now Garfield and Friends, 1988, were you and Evanier working on that together? Well, only in that I was doing his scripts. I wasn't working on the scripts and he wasn't working on the boards. But I'll tell you, 
having worked in animation for an awful long time, I can tell you that most animation writers do not have a sense of the visual. When I was at Marvel, I didn't have to do it because I think it was from a Transformers or G.I. Joe. But everybody was moaning about it. Somebody was given a script in which there was a fight between two jets inside a circus tent. So there you go. And sometimes it's just simple stuff too, like having a guy climb a ladder carrying 15 different things at the same time. And you can't even do that for comedy's sake. What's he hold on to going up a ladder? So it's like when Mark was doing scripts, you could plus them. You could add little funny bits here and there. They didn't need too many, but you could sort of stage it in a funnier way than he described. But most scripts, you're just trying to fix them so they work at all. Because even the best writers, they're just writing words. They're not thinking about it in pictures the way cartoonists write. John Chris Felucci has milked that to death about nobody should be hired as writers in animation. I don't think that. I just want to get writers that know how to visualize like Mark. The only other guy I knew that wrote that well was a felt no longer with us named Earl Kress, who was a friend of Mark's. Now, these two projects are really interesting because it, it has like some involvement in like SCTV, Canadian comedians and things. You got Ed Grimley, 1988, with Martin Short, who voiced Ed Grimley. Eugene Levy and some other SCTV people were kind of in it every now and then. Eugene was in it once. Our main staff was, of course, Martin, Andrea Martin, Catherine O'Hara, Joe Flaherty, and Jonathan Winters. And as much as I loved SCTV, working with Jonathan was the big one for me. He was my first hero that wasn't a cartoonist. I didn't know he was also a cartoonist at the time. Since then, he's given me his cartoons and even a painting. We worked together on a book that never got published. But yeah, Ed Grimley was one of those things that was picked up at the very last minute, the very last minute. And I'd never produced anything. They kind of set me up with another producer who didn't do anything. But he, you know, and he was a nice guy who also drew comics named Kay Wright. He did the Junior Woodchucks that Carl Barks wrote. He worked over Barks' layouts. So we always had lots to talk about when I was in his office, at least. In fact, he drew the first Hanna-Barbera comic that I inked. But the Grimley thing was, I wish I could say it was fun. It was fun at times, but I think it's the closest I've ever come to a nervous breakdown. because. I could not adjust to the idea of turning out something and knowing how many flaws were in. And the first episode was done in three different studios at once, which is never a good idea because things don't hook up or match. They were all in the Orient. I think two were in the Philippines and one was in Taipei. It came back about a week before it went on the air, which was probably the biggest margin I've ever had to fix something for a show. I'll never forget, though, this was, because of this, probably my most significant experience in animation happened. Bill Hanna and I, Bill was showing me how to edit a film. I'd never actually physically done it. And this was before Avids and stuff. This is when we were just literally cutting film and splicing it together. And because Martin Short refused to let us cut anything in the script, this show went out 600 feet long, which is like making another cartoon, practically. So we had to figure out what to keep. It was like taking a steak and turning it into hot dogs because a lot of the connective stuff was just missing. 
But we got the thing. It kind of worked. All the characters' mouths were saying the right voices, which is a big problem coming from overseas. And I thought, you know, this looks pretty good. This looks more or less like the board we intended. And he's kind of making the poses that we wanted. So we were delighted. So I wasn't there. I left early one Friday because the next day was my birthday. And I thought, I'm going to go home at 3 o'clock and just take a nap. I get a call about 5 o'clock, waking me up out of the nap. You got to get over here. Martin Short's throwing a tantrum. He was very upset. And I can understand why. Because he was told that this was going to look like the finest Warner Brothers cartoons by the executive producer. And the executive producer never took responsibility for that, so I had to keep Martin Short happy. And as we worked together, Martin became happier and happier with my work. We had to do a movie, and we kind of had time to catch up on our scripts. So when he came back from the movie, I had come up with a scheme. And what happened was I would go over to his house with the new script, and I'd videotape him reading any of the scenes that weren't him being chased or doing something cartoony. I'd have him act it out. Then I asked one of my best artists, the guy that did the Ed Grimley design that we wound up using, sculptor actually, he gave me all these extreme poses that Ed Grimley hits. Because Martin Short seemed to think that people overseas all knew who Ed Grimley was. And we had to point out, saying, no, they probably don't. And even if they do, we want to do it the right way. So I really, really found a way that worked. And he was happy with it. They didn't rotoscope it. What they would do is, this is just where to see. On this word, he hits this pose. And on the sheets, we just lettered all the poses. Okay, it goes from E to B, then back to E, then to F. And timed it. So suddenly, he was delighted with the show. And that's why I wound up working on John Candy's show, because Martin Short recommended me to John Candy. Okay, so that's how that happened with Cam Candy then. And we would have gotten a second season of Ed Grimley at MeTV, but Bill Hanna had so many problems trying to get the scheduling, because Short was still making movies and stuff. He said, I'm never doing that show again. Oh, I see. It's just too much logistically to balance. So then Cam Candy went from 89 to 92... And John Candy now was part of that production. So how did that compare to The Grimley Show? Well, I always wish that we had done it at Hanna-Barbera because John was always there. He was easy to work with. Uh, Martin was easy to work with too, but his schedule was crazy. But John and I became really good friends. I found out years later that one reason I was hired wasn't just because of Martin Schwartz's recommendation. At the time, I weighed over 400 pounds. I hope that that would reassure John because people just looked at us as freaks, I think. But what it was, it actually worked out great because, again, it was a very late pickup from this NBC, same network. And I thought, I'm not going to waste any time trying to please John. I'm going to find out what he doesn't like and find something he likes. So I thought, I know lots of cartoonists. I was given $10,000 as development money. I hired a guy to do backgrounds, and the rest of the money, I called my cartoonist buddies. I said, give me $500 worth of drawings, just sketches of how you would draw John Candy. For most of my friends, that was about a half day's work. So I figured, we're going to have a winner and many losers. He hated them all. Everybody drew John like a mudslide. People, I guess understandably, focused on his weight instead of his face. 
hated every one of them. So I went home and I'm like, I told Judy, I said, man, I am screwed. Now I've got to figure it out and I've got to figure it out fast. She said, as she often does, very smart things. She said, why don't you just draw them the kind of the same way you draw yourself on your business card? I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, you kind of draw yourself fat, but you kind of draw yourself as Fred Flintstone fat rather than morbid fat. And say like you've got, but I mean I was. But in any event, I whipped something up. John loved it. I thought, shit, I could have paid myself $10,000 for one drawing. It worked out that way. And John was a comic collector when he was a kid. When he died, I was in the process of trying to get together some of the comics on a list that he told me he'd like to have again. The last time we met was with Christopher Columbus. No, it was John Hughes. It wasn't Christopher. It wasn't John Hughes. And the three of us discussed me producing and directing a series of shorts that would go in front of every John Candy with all of his characters from SCTV and new ones. And of course, that never happened. And I had a TV special called Halloween Candy that I'd plotted out for him that he wanted. But poor John left us. And his family had a history of heart problems. So I think he lived the big life knowing that he was going to die young. His dad died when he was about four years old that way going back for quite a while so making that movie is what killed the atmosphere mexico city is a very elevated city so then now after that you worked on the 1994 fantastic four cartoon series and that one is my favorite of the fantastic four cartoons that have been made because a lot of the plots are straight from like the first 30 issues of the 1960s kirby and lee fantastic four and stan lee actually would do some intros in those episodes, I love those because it felt like I was reading the Marvel Masterworks all over again. And also did introductions for the first season, which was horrible, if you remember the first season. Yeah, that was a different, it was different, yeah. But it really was because their new story editor and our producer, Larry Houston, an old friend of mine, was the producer who worked with Jack. And, mm-hmm. and he worked on the X-Men cartoon, too. Although, because Jack was gone, he hired John Basuma to do the models. So, I mean, he knew who the guys to get. The only episode I worked on was what we call a cheater, where it used a lot of footage from other shows. So I had to come up with scenes that were only with the Human Torch, the Super Scroll, Impossible Man, and Lockjaw the Dog. It was essentially a comedy episode, except for the flashbacks that were just clips from other cartoons. So I really enjoyed working on the Impossible Man. Yeah, Impossible Man, for sure. Because that's like Plastic Man in a way. It's a cartoon character that you can put in a superhero strip. But I also was delighted because Fantastic Four is by far my favorite superhero concept. And I still will buy that comic till the day I die. I even bought the ones that Steve Englehart wrote where they're wrestlers or something. I mean, it was like, they don't need a gimmick. It's a family. I mean, I like all those issues. So now I'm just going to go through a quick checklist because we could go all day on this stuff because you're so prolific. But I want to knock through this checklist and Jim's going to go over convention stuff and some more comic stuff is just so the audience to know you worked on What's New Scooby-Doo, 2002 Duck Dodgers for the Cartoon Network, 2003 Mickey's Twice Upon Christmas, 2004 Mulan 2, 2004. That was a busy year. Crypto Superdog, American Dragon Jake Long. Jimmy Two Shoes. So it sounds like just your skill set kept magnifying and building on itself as you were knocking out the next assignment, the next assignment. Well, I like to do cartooning and I like to do a lot of different things at any given time. It actually helps me keep organized. 
I like having an animation job and a print job at the same time, or a writing job and a drawing job at the same time. The last couple of years, I've been illustrating a couple of children's books and then working on well, comics and other gigs in my spare time. So it, it keeps you fresh, it keeps you thinking. Otherwise, you just kind of fall into a funk. I mean, I understand why somebody who had worked on a comic for a long time would request to be put on another comic just to draw different characters after a while you feel like god i've drawn the thing in 800 poses and i know every one of them you don't want to feel like somebody that's touring that was a one-hit wonder that just has to play that same song over and over and over yeah that could be its own nightmare actually yeah even when i do commissions i usually say okay do you want a happy fred you want a yelling fred you want an angry fred i just like to keep enough variety so it doesn't become ordinary. Okay, back to Captain Carrot. Let's talk about the origin of that. You had said that Roy Thomas came to you. Were the visuals, and you had talked about DC interfering with that a little bit, but were the designs mostly your creations? How did you and Thomas work together on this? Roy and I would get together with his wife, Dan, and have a spaghetti dinner at their house and then come up with ideas. And Captain Carrot actually did not originate with me. Roy had been planning on doing a Captain Carrot with Sam Granger back in the 60s. And Sam was a cartoonist who did the Sentinels back up, I think it was in Fight in Five, or one of the Charlton books. And I remember at the time I thought, that's like looking at me trying to draw Steranko, because he was very cartoony. And then he wound up becoming an anchor at Marvel. But they never did anything with it. I think he did one drawing, like kind of a Mighty Mouse-looking version of Captain Carrot. And I saw that long after I ever did my work on it. But Roy, we had been friends after since I worked on the What If story. And Roy used to throw lots of parties and stuff, and I'd be over at his house. And We'd been talking about working on something else, and I don't know if he'd pitched it to DC, but I think DC had mentioned to him to come up with something that they could make into a cartoon show. And initially, we developed a thing called Super Squirrel and the Just a Lot of Animals, who actually wound up turning up in the comic a few times later. But they were based on the DC heroes. And then they came to us. I did a couple of pages of designs, and then I did a couple of uh, kind of tryout pages. I think I had like a giant carrot who looked like Galactus attacking their Earth. And DC comes to us and says, well, we've changed our mind. We want you to create new characters, not characters based on our existing characters, because that's not really selling new IP. It's just a variation on it. And I thought, well, that kind of makes sense. So then Roy and I started kind of thinking about what do we need for your standard team and created a bunch of characters between us with a lot of input from Dan. Jerry Conway gets a credit on, or at least back when they were putting our name on it. But I think that was just a deal between him and Roy because they were swapping points on other things that they'd created in DC. So we had a team and we had a couple of extra characters we're thinking about. One was called Whirly Bird and one was Little Cheese, who we later brought in as, no, he's called Big Cheese. He was like Giant Man. And then we decided not to. But then I pointed out to her, I said, well, we need a big guy on the team, a guy that's like the thing wasn't a big guy, but he was a muscle guy. And I said, besides, you need a bigger guy to stick in the background when you got them all together. And so I came up with Pig Iron on my own. 
And I have to once again say, even though I love Gilbert Shelton and Wonder Warthog, Wonder Warthog really had nothing to do with it. I came up with a name first. I was trying to come up with puns. So in no way is a ripoff of Wonder Warthog. Those characters in that comic had a longevity. I mean, it's a much-loved comic for a lot of people of that particular era and generation. Why do you think that's so? It has a lot of meaning to anyone as long as they don't work at DC Comics. Understand that. I live 15 minutes away from DC Comics. I've never been even invited to come over to sweep up the lawn, sweep up the floor from the shavings. I think Captain Carrot is liked because it was unusual in its day. I've been told by a lot of kids, well, guys in their 40s now, that it was kind of like an underground comic for kids because I was kind of listening to Jack Kirby about Draw It Your Own Way and yet at the same time imitating Jack Kirby because that was part of the concept that made it new and fresh in our minds was what if Mighty Mouse was drawn by Jack Kirby. Even though I think there were too many puns, it got a little weary and quite honestly, when I wrote it, I wrote way too much dialogue because I was imitating Roy, who, but not knowing what I was doing. Roy wrote a lot of dialogue too, but not like me. I really overdid it. But the tone on the books, we both kind of were trying to think of Carl Barks because even though they're fun and funny, there's kind of like some real stakes going on. It was an adventure story, like one of the longer Uncle Scrooges. It's an adventure story. It's not solved by a funny gag at the end. It's pretty straight with just pantless ducks running around. We both kind of had that attitude with Captain Carrot. It's like, let's make it straight. And then Jeff Johns came along and had little cheese killed. So then we really got like a superhero book. Now, did DC seem to have at least have some investment in it in that, as I remember, you had a sneak preview in like the Wolfman Perez Teen Titans. Is that right? Yeah, that was how they were promoting all their new books, though. Yeah, because Teen Titans got a preview that way as well. But to put Captain Carrot in that, it would seem to indicate that they had some hope for its success. Carrot was never considered a kiddie comic until recently. They did a new version of it not that long ago. Did they reach out to you at all? Did you have any? No, they didn't reach out to me in the slightest, nor Roy, nor Roy. They asked Paul Dini if he knew anybody that would be good. And Paul Dini suggested my friend and at the time my editor at Bongo, Bill Morrison. And Bill Morrison said, yeah, I can do it, but why haven't you asked Scott Shaw? They said, well, if that's who you want to work with, I guess you can work with him. And then he asked me, and then I did it. And I wound up actually kind of secretly co-writing a lot of it with him. And I didn't get paid a cent for that, but that was fine. I at least wanted to have some input into it. And Roy was understandably quite upset for quite a while, but it wasn't anything that Bill Morrison had engineered. They came to Bill. Warner's really let me down on that thing. It was supposed to be a six-issue comic. They actually specified where it started and where it ended in terms of the plot because they wanted to tie it into one of those mega events. It never tied into the mega event. And they said, this will be considered a regular mainstream DC comic. They wound up paying me for the kids' rates. They said, this will be a perfect superhero DC comic. In the center spread, they put a 16-page commercial for... Goldfish crackers, 
that looked like it was written and drawn for children that couldn't read yet. I'm not crazy about DC. That's your interaction with DC that you said you have some grievances with. Well, we're not interaction with them. They haven't called me. They've published new Captain Carrot stuff. And if you've seen my work, quite honestly, I draw better than I drew then. But quite honestly, I'm getting a taste of the fact that comics were created by gangsters, you know? So besides DC, well, let me ask it this way. Was that experience with DC the worst experience you've had in professional comics in terms of being ill-treated or cheated? No, I think Archie's probably the king of that. That's where I was going with that, because that actually turned into litigation. Well, you got caught up in litigation. No, I didn't get I've done some, uh, what do they call, not testimonials, but uh, depositions for them. But yeah, I did Sonic the Hedgehog. I did the first issue, number zero, and the first whole two issues after that, and I did like the cover for the number three. And they called me up and said, well, would you like to do this? I was working at the ad agency at the time, but I said, sure. I said, and I wasn't a gamer. I knew Sonic was a brand new character to me. In fact, I think it was America because one of the ways I was ripped off was I did this whole issue number zero. Nobody told me that they were going to be reprinting it to give away for free as advertising for the game at Toys R Us in millions of copies. So that's a second usage right there. They also did a third version, an eight-page version that they gave away. But that's not enough. At the time, I was working in advertising. I was doing the Pebble Serial commercials. I was also doing the Pebble Serial comic book ads. I was also doing the boxes and the toys, but that's beside the point. Anyway, I was getting paid a very, very hefty amount for each one-page ad. And meanwhile, from Archie, I'm getting like $200 a page for, no, I wouldn't even get that much. I didn't income. So I felt that when Archie started reprinting my stuff, I never signed any kind of a waiver. I don't remember the check having the thing on the back saying, I give away rights, but at that point, if I did get that, I crossed it out, cashed it anyway. They couldn't do anything about that. So they haven't just done that to me. There are a number of people whose work they constantly reprint who never signed any kind of a waiver, and that's why there have been so many people after them. And they aren't doing much of anything about it. I think they may have settled with Ken Penders, the first guy that was doing it, and after that. Archie's an extremely, I mean, I love Archie comics, don't get me wrong, but the family nature of that outfit, there is an arrogance in that company that is unmatched. What was your experience with Bongo Comics? Nothing but good until Bill Morrison left. (laughs) That never happened to me before. The new editor just loathed my stuff. Never got a single thing. By the way, Sergio never got a single assignment from me either, even though Sergio was working on the Simpsons comics at the time. Sergio Aragonis. Oh, yes. We knew who you were talking about. Which reminds me, I wanted to ask you about doing the Ramones project for Rhino, because Sergio did that incredible piece on that, too. How did that come about? Well, I've been working for Rhino Records since the early 80s. And actually, the fellow that owned Golden Apple Comics in Los Angeles recommended me to him, and it became a very happy relationship. I had talked with one of the art directors. He'd approached me about doing a whole book of Ramon's lyrics that were illustrated as though they were Dr. Seuss stories. 
And at the time, Rhino's attorney said that there was no way Random House was ever going to let us get away with publishing an entire book that was drawn in Dr. Seuss's style. So we never did anything with it. And then this Ramon's box set idea came up and we realized, oh, well, we can do a number of covers. And mine wasn't one of the actual covers, but one of the drawings of that Hey Ho, Let's Go would have been the cover of the other book that never happened. And I wound up doing that and some of the lyrics on my own in a Dr. Seuss style. And then I also did something with Bobby London. We worked together on a storyboard for a never-sold Ramones cartoon that was essentially, it was all cat and mice. Bobby wanted to do something that would be kind of like Art Spiegelman's mouse, but happier. Did you meet the Ramones in relation to this? Never met him. Never met him, no. It seems like there's some interesting crossover. We've talked to a lot of people, Mary Fleener recently and Bill Stout, where they transfer music into comics. Were you a super interested music person too? Well, I've never been a musician, unlike them. But yeah, I did a really, what I think was a really cool comic. It was a five-page story. It was for the 50th issue of Critters from Fanagraphics. And Todd Rundgren has been my favorite musician for a long time. To me, he's kind of like a cartoonist with music. So I did an adaptation of a song of his called Onomatopoeia, where it's nothing but sound effects. So on each page, I've got 16 panels just to keep up with it. I think I sent you a copy of that. I've seen that. Yes, absolutely. I knew it beforehand. I know that piece. What about Streetwise? What about it? (laughs) I was asked to work on it. I'd been contributing some stuff to the Jack Kirby magazine that John Morrow's Tomorrow's Company puts out. He asked me to do something, and I think I did four strips, and the third one was bumped just for space. And that was a feature that I like to call, now it can be told as though it's something important, and obviously it's only because it's an important crap that only happened to me. But it's all funny stuff that's happened to me, or weird stuff, or I seem to be weirdness magnet. So I've got a lot of funny stories and that was my first batch. And now I'm, I've got an agent pitching a book of nothing but those. I'd like to kind of have a basic autobiography, but it's not necessarily about what I've achieved. It's just of all the things that have happened. (laughs) You mentioned Sergio a few minutes ago. The two of you seem to travel in similar pathways in terms of both being very, very funny in in terms of your comics and things. Do you know him very well? Well, I would imagine Sergio probably has 500 people who say he's their best friend, but he's certainly one of my best friends. That's what I thought. We talk on the phone all the time. He doesn't stay up as late as he used to, but he's the only person I know that I can call at 3 o'clock in the morning if there's a really good Mexican monster movie on, and he'll pick up the phone and say, I've already got it on. We commiserate quite a lot, and I'm so lucky to know the guy that I think is possibly the world's greatest living cartoonist. I mean, there's just nobody like Sergio. And yet people take him for granted to some degree in terms of just how skilled an artist he is. No, I don't think it's that. I think it's the fact that he is so prolific. It's kind of like, because I sit next to him at Comic-Con. I have for years. People come up, you're my favorite artist. Oh, what's this? It's called Groove. They always kind of assume that he's always going to be there. I'll pick it up next time. 
I'll buy that in the graphic novel because he was out there every month in Mad and every month in comics for a long, long time. But as I said earlier, comic fans don't seem to want funny stuff. Comic fans want to be about Batman showing off his penis. That's their idea of entertainment now. And I'm not offended by it. I just think it's stupid. It's like, come on, you're going to get all of us without jobs if you keep doing stuff like that. Yeah, I wasn't impressed with the penis at all, I got to say. Especially anybody that knows comic production knows that a number of people saw that before it went into print. So DC claiming they were surprised is complete and nonsense. So in closing about your comics, I want to ask, what are some other, because we could talk again, like your animation, we could go for hours more on this. What would be other books or other works that you did that you're especially proud of that you'd like? If somebody said, show me something by Scott Shaw, comics wise, what would be the other books besides the things that we all know that you would say, this is, I'm really proud of this work. In comic books. Well, I'm actually quite pleased with those ads I was doing for comic books for Pebbles because, again, I got to make them look good and kind of unusual and people seem to remember me doing them. But I like doing those Now It Can Be Told. I liked working for Bongo very much. I think those stories are a lot of fun, but the problem is most people don't notice who wrote or draw anything if it's a licensed character like that. I don't know. I don't think I have any secret comic that I think is the great one that nobody ever looked at. I'll tell you one that I was really proud of that nobody's really seen. I did an eight-page backup for Savage Dragon two years ago, mainly because I just like Savage Dragon. But it wasn't him. It was a version I approached Eric Larson with years ago about doing a special. So I thought, what if there was a character like Savage Dragon, but he was also like Little Archie? It's an eight-page story I wrote and drew, and it's kind of me doing a little Archie without having to kiss the ring of Archie comics. So few people saw copies. I don't think I even have a copy. Eric never got around to sending me any, so there you go. But it was a good story, and I don't think most people saw it. No, no, I don't think I have. It's called The Boy Without a Birthday. I will see it. And then finally, I just want to go back to where we started with Comic-Cons. You've never missed one up until this year. Is that right for San Diego? No, I missed one when I shattered my ankle. Okay. I missed the 215 one. And now Mark likes to puff up and strut around and let everybody know that he's been to all of them. However, not that I'm trying to create any kind of a rift between Mark and I. We're also very, very close. But... I've probably been to more days of Comic-Con because I know there was a while where he had to go back for his mom and different things. So I remember there were certain Comic-Cons where he was only there maybe one or two of the days of the whole thing. So it really doesn't matter. It's not like some, you know, no remation or genitals here. I'll tell you, the worst thing about that was being in the hospital and at home and watching these TV faces pretend like attractive female models for one of the sports channels acting like they gave a damn about, and here's Captain America number one. And I mean, Comic-Con has now been appropriated by people who are trying to be hip or trying to look like they're in on the real thing. And that drives me nuts. It's like, I'm glad that this is no longer our little secret, but I just wish that the people that didn't belong with comics would just leave us alone. It's a tourist industry now, and it wasn't when I first started going, that's for sure. The other thing you have to understand is 
I've worked in entertainment in one way or another since the 1980s. And I don't go to Comic-Con for the entertainment industry. Therefore, I really resent it, but there's no way you can change it. They can buy a table or a hundred tables just like anybody else. You can't ban Warner Brothers or a video game company or anybody from Comic-Con. I just enjoy conventions that have never attracted that kind of crowd in the first place. I still love Comic-Con. This isn't a slam against that. But I'm just saying, after putting up with entertainment as a job, going down to Comic-Con kind of on a busman's holiday, I really don't want to have to watch entertainment beat its chest one more time. What are you asked to draw the most? Is it Sonic? Is it Captain Carrot? What are the most popular characters for you to request? And does it depend on the age of the people asking? That definitely depends on the age. The older people want Fred Flintstone. The middle-aged people want Captain Carrot. And the kids that have heard that I do it want Sonic because it's the only character they've heard of. (laughs) That's true. And last question. Did you read the Mark Russell Flintstones? And if so, what did you think of it? It wasn't the Flintstones. First of all, the movie wasn't the Flintstones either. And that's how they drew them to look like movie characters. By the way, Amanda Connor did the actual designs. I think she is brilliant. I love her work. And that's one thing comics now miss that she has. There is appeal in her work. You look at those characters, even the pro, as sleazy and depressing as it is, boy, look at the expression on that person. Look at, she doesn't just have the seven Sal Basima poses and expressions. She really draws well. But the comic itself, look, I got to tell you the truth. Warner Brothers instructed DC, you got to help us sell these characters. We don't know what to do with them. There was a lot of pressure being put on because DC suddenly realized we've got all this IP and we don't know how to sell it. The new Scoob movie may finally be a path for them to sell it because I'm not a Scooby fan, but that was decent. And I think people might be more interested in the characters if kind of they're shown with Scooby first. But all that crap they did with the Hanna-Barbera characters. And I got to tell you, I've had friends really go after me thinking that I'm somehow homophobic or angry with gay people. But making Snagglepuss gay because he was created to be a corny Shakespearean actor. If he's so theatrical, isn't that kind of an insult to gay people? Oh, yes, you're all theatrical. Like a stereotype, you mean? I mean, and on top of that, The creator's idea, in my mind, unless it's Swamp Thing or something like that, where Alan Moore came in and added stuff to it, but it's kind of the creator that gets the say. I can tell you, if Bill and Joe were alive and you asked them, oh, is Snagglepuss gay? They'd look at you like you had a penis growing out of your forehead. Nobody thinks in those terms. They're cartoon characters. They're there to be funny and get hit in the face and fall off a cliff. I mean, they don't have sex lives. They don't even have genitals. They walk around with no pants. So it's like, look, if you want to have a gay, funny animal character, that's great. Create one. There's Odd Duck or Gay Duck. I forget his name. I love those cartoons. But it's not a gay issue. It's a creativity issue. And I think that if people want a character with a certain message, create a character made for that message. 
It's kind of like Warner Brothers a few years ago decided that Tweety Bird was a woman because they discovered through their marketing people that most women thought Tweety was a girl, and that's why they bought Tweety jewelry and things like that. So then they officially made Tweety a girl. Now that Warner Brothers is making new cartoons, Tweety's a boy again. I will say that I did like it. I wasn't thrilled about Quick Draw McGraw being a gay policeman and also a brutal one, but I could handle Snagglepuss. It was trying to do something. Make sure you handle him where he likes it. All right. So, (laughs) Alex, you want to do the advertising career? I really love messing with you academic guys. (laughs) (laughs) Grab it where he likes it, Jim. That's... (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to repeat that line. I'm going to use that line again. Well, that's funny you mentioned funny animals without pants because Jim and I don't wear pants for these shows. That's a really interesting overlap. Yeah, but you're not funny animals. <laughs> that's a really good point. You're on fire. <laughs> I'm kidding, by the way, audience. We have pants, very long, sturdy pants. Extra pants on. We actually have two pairs of pants. Yeah, we're very pantsed up. So from 1991 to 2000, you worked for 10 years at an ad agency, Ogilvy and Mather, doing commercials for things like Post Fruity and Cocoa Pebble cereals, all sorts of things. It was actually a very prolific 10 years. So tell us how, because that's like you're kind of working on the like Ed Grimley, John Candy stuff at the same time, Camp Candy the Fantastic Four stuff while you're also working at the ad agency doing stuff. So there's a lot of overlap time-wise. Tell us how you got into the ad agency. No, there wasn't an overlap there. I had already done that. I mean, this was my new full-time job. I was actually working at Film Roman on a show called Crow, I think, when I took the job at Ogilvy. And that was about the same time you mentioned. But all that other stuff happened in the 90s, pretty much. The thing with the commercials was I was working on a lot of that stuff freelance since about 1983, but it wasn't me supervising anything. I was doing boards and models and that sort of thing. Then I heard that the art director had quit. So I called him up and I said, well, how about hiring me? And they said, well, you haven't been trained in advertising. I said, I've done 50 of these commercials already. I know what you want. And I pointed out to him, I said, wouldn't you like to have an art director that actually communicates with the artist because it's all the same person? They said, yeah. He said, in that case, you won't mind paying me a separate fee for when I actually do the production work as a freelancer. And that way, I don't have to mix the two jobs up because I don't have time. I'm busy selling stuff to the post to get it made. Oh, okay. And that also applied to when I was doing the ads for comic books, the art on the cereal boxes, and even the little things in the cereal boxes sometimes. You can only imagine how happy I was to be working on my favorite characters and getting paid grand larceny money for doing it. And that's the thing. I'm not bragging here, but it's in advertising. You have no idea how much money they suddenly have when something needs to be changed. Because everything is done at the last minute in advertising. The reason they love me so much, that ad agency, I have a letter somewhere. I gave them a copy from Bill Hannay. He said, if Scott Shaw does it, it's approved. So with me in the circle, they didn't have to worry about last minute approvals. When I started, Pebble Serial was way kind of toward the bottom of their middling accounts. 
when I left, I was laid off because Post was sold from Kraft to Quaker Oats. They weren't even sure what their campaign. And I don't know if you've seen the commercials. They don't even have animation in them. But I enjoyed it very much. And after a while, I worked from home so I could get a lot of other stuff done because i got to tell you, I must sound like a jerk, and I don't mean to. But most of the people used to be advertising was like the smartest and best creators went to first because there was the most money and respect back in the 50s, right? Doing it now, I mean, when I was there, most of the time I was spending fixing other people's storyboards because they'd come in and, how do I draw this and how do I do that? It was like, I'm not here to be the fixer. (laughs) It was kind of surprising that I was one of the only people there that could even draw among their art directors. How can you be an art director and communicate with artists without being able to draw? Yeah, interesting. So that leads to an interesting question is, what what happened to Saturday morning cartoons? Why are they gone? And why do a lot of these serials don't have like the Honey Nut Cheerios Bee or the Flintstones characters or animations or characters in the commercials for the serials anymore? Like what happened to that? The party ended. What happened? Well, two things. Cereal got very expensive, so it's not being bought as much. And people comment on the fact that eating that cereal will give you diabetes. I didn't even eat that cereal, and I got diabetic just out of karma. (laughs) Honestly, I would have sold Flintstone's nerve gas. I really wouldn't have cared as long as I was told, here's the budget, here's the schedule. Okay, those both sound good, and here's the star. You know, okay. Even if it was Agent Orange, if it had Fred Flintstone, it's fine. I once worked on a bunch of Simpsons commercials for Japan because they were the color of the product. I gotcha. So cereal became less glorified because of its high sugar content and bad health side effects. What's the second thing you were going to say? Well, just the fact that it became so expensive. So a lot less people are buying it. So then what about as far as Saturday morning cartoons? Now, what I had read was an article that through a couple sequences, one thing that Bush Sr. did and then Clinton also did, that both of these legislations made it harder to fit X number of advertisements within one 30-minute cartoon, so then it was no longer the money was around to then make those Saturday morning cartoons because there was advertising limits that were set in the 90s. Is that what led to the death of the Saturday morning cartoon officially? No, I think it was Nickelodeon. Okay, tell me about that. Well, Nickelodeon was the first cable station that I'm aware of that devoted themselves to children. And on top of that, they really knew how to brand themselves. They were kind of like Jay Ward and Hanna-Barbera thrown into one because they were the only new studios when I was a kid. Therefore, they were like the cavalry. We would watch anything from either of those studios, not even because they were good, but because they were new. The same thing was the case with Nickelodeon. All these kids had seen not only a lot of cartoons, but by that time, cartoons were pretty mediocre. I mean, the Smurfs were probably the liveliest thing on the air, and they were still teaching a, a very important message. So the Nickelodeon stuff, they didn't have any of that. They were just funny and weird and unique, and kids could watch them any day of the week. I mean, I think initially they were on Saturdays, maybe, but I know eventually Nickelodeon had cartoons on all the time. And if it wasn't shows, it would be other shows like Kablam and things like that. I have a cartoon question related to that because I've taught 
Flintstones before in a Saturday morning cartoon genre class. And one of the things that we talked about was that the network, when the Flintstones transferred over from prime time over to Saturday morning cartoons, and basically as that was starting to be created, progressively with each new spin on the Flintstones, they would kind of get less and less of the dual purpose where adults could enjoy it at one level and children would enjoy it at another level. Because you talked about not the Flintstones, but the original series had things like infertility as topics and adoption and things. There were interesting aspects. It was in one episode, Jim, and all they said was, oh, let's make a wish that we could have a baby. But there was a court battle. There were custody battles because I pay attention to such things. But that was not the only one. There were weight issues with Fred Flintstone. There were certainly things that adults would follow on that. Not after the second season of the Flintstones. I've been watching them. I agree. Well, I'd say season three. The extra episodes beyond second season was where Pebbles was introduced. They have about eight or nine episodes where Fred is trying to learn how to be a dad, and those are actually funny. And the animators are still kind of pushing it. But from that point on, and I didn't even notice this when I was a kid, but I certainly notice it now. Most of those scripts, with the exception of adding rock or stone to the ends of names, they took all their best animators and all their best writers and put them on the new shows because, oh, Flintstones are a success. We don't need to worry about anymore. And the writing, especially when they added Bam Bam, was completely for children on that show. Almost none of the stories were about domestic issues anymore. The Flintstones always had enough money to go on vacation because it was a one way to have them meet surfers or rock stars or whoever. And the whole thing changed because suddenly it wasn't about the honeymooners. We can debate season three just a little bit, and we will at the next convention, I promise. But you're right. It's primarily that episode is what I'm recalling. But my point is, what I've heard and what scholars have written about is that what would happen was that the network wanted to exercise all adult material from all of these cartoons and gear them more and more toward young children because they wanted the ratings to not have adult watchers, that it was about focusing it solely on where the demographics were all about young children, and that was for advertising and commercial purposes. Did you ever get a sense of that in any of your workings? This is the first time I've ever heard about it. There's a lot of writings on it and a lot of people that acknowledged it. That's interesting. Nobody's ever made an issue of that with me. And I've always tried to put as much adult stuff into them as possible, especially on Muppet Babies. We got away with an awful lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm only talking about the Flintstones because as they went to Smoo and then other things, and then they began to regress to the Flintstone kids and that kind of thing. By that time, it was already in the toilet. All the Saturday morning stuff was crap. You got to understand, that was all crap. What I'm suggesting is that was deliberate, that they wanted it to be crap because they didn't want adults to be able to stand to watch it. That's why they hired me, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not suggesting that about you. Jim, what are you saying about our guest? All right. Hey, why don't we talk about oddball stuff? Oddball comics. Now, you had mentioned, Scott, that you'd been working on oddball comics and your comic history analysis 
for the past 40 years. There's a 10-year run where you were doing some online stuff on comic book resources. Recently, you have some articles in Retro Fan Magazine for tomorrow's. Tell us about Oddball Comics and your whole other career as a comic book historian, because not only can you draw, you can write, but you can also speak and analyze. So tell us about it. Even as a kid, I liked the weird comics. I bought all the Marvels and all the DCs and all that sort of thing. But I, for example, bought Conan Monarch of Monster Isle. It's one of my favorites. I liked anything with dinosaurs or gorillas on the cover. It's really funny because Erwin Donenfeld, he believed the same thing. But I guess it worked because that's what I saved my pennies for was dinosaur comics. I remember collecting right off the racks every issue of Kona, every issue of War of the Time Forgot. I had one of my first comic subscription was Turok's on a Stone. I liked popular stuff, but I always had stuff that was particular to what I liked. And it turned out that stuff was kind of the nutty stuff. And then I running a comic book store and working with these guys and even going to comic conventions, even just Comic-Con itself. I was seeing lots of comics that I wouldn't normally see. It was like when I worked for B. Dalton Bookseller as the shipping clerk. I'm unpacking boxes of books and finding out that I was interested in a lot more things than I realized. Same thing when you're exposed to comics. And first of all, the fact that I never sneered at humor comics gave me an awful lot wider range of stuff that I was looking at. And then when I became a cartoonist, even a crummy cartoonist, I was really looking at the stuff and I was realizing, well, how come on this run of Lois Lane, every cover has something pointing to her crotch? Well, I found out years later that was when Joe Orlando was telling her by sex sells. And that was after that book about the uh, subliminal advertising. But instead of subliminal, he made it absolutely obvious. I mean, Lois is holding a spear at Superman's crotch and it's dripping something white. Oh, she just took a sperm sample. Nice. So before Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct, there was actually Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, you're saying. Exactly. But there's tons of stuff like that out there. But it's not just all dirty. Essentially, you look at it, you go, how the hell did this get published? Because some cases, it's a bad choice of dialogue. For example, that famous one with, it's Betty and me, and she's saying, oh, Archie, thanks for rescuing me. And he says, yeah, I had to beat off three other guys to do it. <laughs> well, when you read it, it doesn't, but when you say it the way you're saying it. <laughs> well, how else do you say it? I mean, it's written exactly like that. And the term beat off is in bright red letters. I can't stop laughing every time you say that phrase. I don't know what it is. It's like a button. <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> Get the women in on this. I think that comic came out in 65, which meant I was 14. I said, and somebody at the show went and said, please, that probably just wasn't even a term for that back then. I said, I have firsthand information. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. So it actually was the term back then. That's awesome. There's also Jughead's Eat Out. That's another comic. <laughs> I can't stop laughing when you say these things. And then there's that famous Rifleman cover where he's holding that log up at a very suspicious angle. And his TV kid looks like he wants to get the hell out of there as much as possible. And meanwhile, Chuck Connors is like, hey, check this out. It's like, and I actually asked, can't think of the actor's name that played his son, but he said, I don't remember a thing about that. And I would think he would because... A lot of those photo covers for Dell and Gold Key Comics, 
they actually just had the actors in town and they'd like take the three stooges. They'd say, okay, let's go down to Western costumes, see what you want to put on. Westerners or dressed like genies or whatever. They'd go back for a couple of days and shoot the next three weeks worth of covers because they didn't want to have to use those crappy little black and white stills they always use for publicity on stuff like that. That's not going to sell a comic. Although you remember a lot of comics that did, like, have a call for cover. You try to find the hero, and he's like this black and white guy, kind of like in a little cameo stuck in someplace, because they're like, well, I guess we have to use this. Scott, you'd mentioned a few people like with Little Archie, like with Bowling and with John Stanley and stuff. One that I wanted to ask you about, and it certainly fits with the Oddball comics, is Ogden Whitney and Herbie. Ogden Whitney's the perfect guy to draw Herbie because it's like his drawing style is not a comic book style. It's like a guy that illustrates brochures on how to give yourself some medical operation or something. I mean, it's so institutional tries to draw funny, it's not funny. But when he just draws like himself, it's really funny. They got Kurt Schaffenberger to start doing covers toward the end. And those weren't nearly as good because they were too well drawn. The only guy I always thought should have, could have taken over Herbie that had that same institutional look would have been John Forte. Oh, and you mentioned Chick Stone earlier, and Chick Stone was working for those guys, not for that, but for Nemesis as well. Yeah, I wrote the introduction to the collection of Nemesis, and I think the collection cost more than if you went out and bought the comics themselves. Nobody wants those. Nobody. <laughs> I love those comics. I love the costume. I love everything about that comic. And you liked it because he stole the Phantom's shorts. <laughs> They're both wore striped shorts, and stripes don't appear anywhere else in their costume. I'm surprised DC didn't have somebody wearing go-go checks for paints. Remember when they put those go-go checks across the top of each cover? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it seems like it would have popped up in Dial H for Hero at least once. Well, it always killed me because it's like you're using valuable space for a thing that doesn't say comics at all. But they seem to think it worked for a couple of years. Now it said professional car racing much more than it did comics. Exactly. Those guys don't read comics. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Alex Toe's Hot Rod? I don't know. Probably not. Alex Toth used to work for cartoons in those automotive humor magazines. A lot of guys did. Russ Manning did. Did Ditko do anything for those? He mainly worked for Cracked. He loved Charlton. You know, I was going through scanning some books last night, and it's amazing how loyal he was to Charlton, considering I guess they'd just take anything he drew. And not ask him about it, not interfere with it, which, of course, would be what he would care about. Yeah. I think he was just like exercising his comic art form every time, experimenting things. Yeah, yeah. Although I really do love some of his humor stuff. He did some of those Gorgos and Congas that he tries to draw them funny, and he's really good at it. He's actually has a very good sense of humor in some of that stuff. He does a lot of one-page cartoons that are would surprise people because they take him so seriously. I have a friend that hired him to do comics and storyboards for Tiny Toons. I'm not making this up. Tiny Toons. Ditko did some work on that show. I've never heard that before. Tell us about the... Well, that's news. You'd hear lots of things. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not making this up. It's a guy that I know that likes to kind of hire people that he doesn't know will be able to do the job. And then if they don't, then he just does it himself. And sometimes it turns out horribly, 
But Ditko's comics were for overseas with all those characters like Plucky Duck. And he drew all of them pretty well, but they all had that Ditko vibe to them, which I didn't think worked very well because they all immediately looked kind of psycho, you know? I mean, <laughs> no, we you know. I've seen the big boy comics. There's something off about it. I'll tell you something that's going to horrify everyone that manages to get this far into this thing. When I was a kid, I was buying Gorgon Conga. I knew Steve Ditko's name because he signed those things. When the first issue of Spider-Man came out, I never saw Adult Fantasy 15. But a neighbor gave me a copy of that Spider-Man because he didn't like it, the first one. I read through it, and I thought, this comic is so cheap, and somebody must have printed this in their basement. I cut it up with an X-Acto knife. I have never done anything with a comic remotely to cut it up or disface it or anything. And it was like one of those Saturday or Sunday afternoons where you're 13 and you can't get anybody to drive anywhere. And I just traced every frame with a cut it out. And then I cut out each. <laughs> oh, no, that sounds like something from Jeffrey Dahmer's house. Well, I could have gotten a job in Marvel's production department. I was so good with cutting it apart. <laughs> That was hard. That's like something that, like what Ed Gein used to do, you know, in his cabin. But you did that with the Ditko comic. Yeah, no blood. And you didn't make a necklace out of the panels. No, I just tossed them in the trash. I mean, I think the thing that offended me most was I hadn't had the comic for more than five minutes and the cover ink was coming off in my hands. Because that was early where they weren't coating the paper stock. So there was nothing to prevent the ink from coming off in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scott, two questions to sort of begin to wrap up or wrap up. One, where's the exclamation point come from and how long have you had it? And secondly, what current or new projects have you got that our fans ought to know about? Like I said, I was born in 51. So by the time I was in junior high school, there were a lot of movies. Atari was one of them. Dinosaurus was one of them a few years earlier. A lot of movies with one word and an exclamation point. But then I was really into not car culture, but just the Big Daddy Roth style monster car culture. And a second guy started doing it, who I never realized actually started doing it before Roth, named Stanley Miller from Detroit, who called himself Mouse with an exclamation point. And those ads started appearing when they started doing model kits of his stuff. And that's who I stole it from, because I thought, it's not just that this guy is doing it, but that's how every sentence in comics ends, unless it has a question mark. I wasn't talking about Classics Illustrated that had good English. But I thought, too, this just shows how excited I am about drawing cartoons. I started doing that probably in seventh grade. So nothing to do with Rifleman. It's not a penis. There's No, no, but I could make it one. <laughs> if we do a part two, we'll have that. I could start drawing it that way if I'd get more people going. Yeah, well, you're going to have to make it kind of veiny then. I've got a lot of S. Clay Wilson comics. There you go. What are you working on currently? I just love dragging you guys down into my cesspool. This is wonderful. Yeah, I'm going to feel bad when my son insists upon listening to this. Well, you're glad I wasn't my real self. Things I've been working on, let's see. Well, I'm finishing a sequel to a book I illustrated a few years ago. I didn't write it. I'm kind of involved with the writing on this one, but it's called Maroon Lagoon 2. Um, let me show you a picture from it. Oh, that is beautiful. 
Look at that cat. These are two-page spreads that I did. It all takes place in the Everglades swamp, and a hurricane comes through and gets all the kids separated from their parents, and everything's mixed up, so they don't know what anything is, so they're trying to make stuff out of the debris. I mean, it's very visual. I've also got a number of graphic novels that I'm developed that I'm trying to get a publisher to take up, but right now, I don't think anybody's making any decisions. Other than that, I'm working on my Oddball Comics book, which will be out who knows when, but it'll be out. And I'm doing commissions once in a while. I haven't been approached by any studios or any comic book companies for a while. And quite honestly, I'm kind of more interested in creating my own stuff right now anyway than doing other people's stuff. I know that's what people say when they run out of people trying to hire him, but I've kind of drawn all the characters that I wanted to draw of other people's. Now I want to draw more of mine. I wanted to tell you that when I told my son, and this is what you did for him, which we framed, and he looks at it all the time. He used it for show and tell on Zoom recently and told the story. You had that behind you this whole time. I was looking on the wall to see how you had two of them. Yeah, no, no, there it is. Okay, well, that's off model. I should go correct that. (laughs) When I told him that I was going to be interviewing you today, he said, what do you mean? He's my friend. He's not yours. (laughs) I'll always remember Willoughby because I like Twilight Zone. Well, that's why we named him that. Sunshine and Sunlight and Serenity. That was the lines that made me think that's a good name for Willoughby. Well, that's very good. That's very nice. I know you're trying to shut up. I had a good Rod Serling story for you, but we'll do that next. Oh, no, absolutely. Well, I met Rod Serling when he was lecturing at colleges. I also met Al Cap the same way. And I had the same reaction to my question. I asked Al Cap, what's it like working with Frank Zappa? Frank Zappa, that would have been good. (laughs) Serling was actually supposed to be promoting Planet of the Apes and Night Gallery. He actually was apologizing for both of them because he felt that Night Gallery was awful, which I think is true. But he was even apologizing for Planet of the Apes because they changed the script significantly. My question was, completely out of left field, were you ever influenced when coming up with your stories for The Twilight Zone by EC Comics? Cap said, what the hell does a hippie know about Frank Frazetta? And Serling said the same thing. What the hell does a hippie know about EC Comics? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a cartoonist and a comic collector. And, you know, I said, they're all based on kind of O. Henry type stories. So I figured maybe you have science fiction writers writing this. They probably read those comics because they had Bradbury stories. Goes, I want you to come down and see me in my dressing room after I'm done. So I came down and I walk in. He goes, of course they were EC Comics. We were absolutely inspired by them. Most people don't know that. I said, well, I just kind of figured that sci-fi guys are going to know that stuff. He goes, of course we did. And we talked for about 10 minutes and he was absolutely and receptive and very short. So you got the confirmation. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I think guys still back then were surprised that people were knowledgeable about that stuff. And what did Al Cap say when you went to his dressing room after? No, he didn't invite In fact, the only reason I got to ask him that was he came out to UC San Diego and was speaking about trying to raise more controversy because he was the guy that stood up against hippies. So he was getting all these people showing up and he was getting in the news a lot. And that's what he was looking for. 
So he got to this thing and he started out and he said, he was actually very funny and chipper and he was kind of jousting with the kids, you know, rather than acting insulted. And then all of a sudden he said, okay, one more interruption and I'm leaving. Like out of the blue. I mean, he seemed to be enjoying it. So everybody shut up and one guy did that slow clap and he turned around. It was in the gymnasium. And he turned around and walked across the courts and walked into a little door and slammed the door shut. And everybody said, okay, screw him. And they all got up and left, except for me and my fanboy buddies who were all sitting in the front row and were looking at each other like, what the hell? Kind of sat there for about 10 minutes, kind of, well, maybe, you'll, no, he's not going to come out. But what, what did he do that for? We don't know. All we hear walking, a very kind of odd gait because of his, and I now know what it's like to have an odd gait with a prosthetic foot. And it's Al Cap. He never told us this, but as an adult, I think somebody must have said, you're not getting paid your honorarium unless you go out there and give a speech. And it was to 10 of us. And we were all comic nuts. And quite honestly, I knew he hated hippies, but I didn't care. I didn't know he was a guy that preyed on women. I don't think I would have liked him as much. I didn't care that he hated hippies. I kind of expected him to be hated, but I loved Little Abner. And I still love Little Abner. You can't say that loud. Oops. But... I mean, it's one of the most brilliant, most dour, cruel comics about how cruel mankind is of anything I've ever read. It's also how I found out I like girls. Because of Daisy May? No, actually, all the women. Even Mammy had Popeye's head, <laughs> but a woman's body. <laughs> but had a nice body, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading some of that old, because Dennis Kitchen reprinted some of those. It was interesting, like one continuity was like the plot to the Waterboy movie. And then another continuity was the plot to Billy Madison. And I was like, whoa, dude, this is like, there's a lot of comedy gold. And there's like hundreds to thousands of these stories. If it's comedy gold, how come it's winding up in Adam Sandler movies? <laughs> but it is. I just thought that's like crazy. I'm like, oh my God, there's like three Adam Sandler movies I've read already in just the first year and a half. Well, I'll never forget as a kid, I was just shocked because I was kind of used to comics being funny and his stuff was kind of funny. But I remember a little Abner or somebody fell down a bottomless pit and they're all like, wow, wow. And then they all just walk away. What's for dinner? And I, oh, poke chops, you know? And I'm thinking, aren't they even going to try to help him? <laughs> I mean, he didn't know how women were, but he knew the cruelty of mankind. And that's what I dig about it is he sold it in the weirdest way possible. But boy, you read that and it's obvious how he does not respect the human race and probably for good reason. Yeah. And then also what he did with Chester Gould and Dick Tracy with the Fearless Fosdick character, it's like he really was able to make fun of Chester Gould and then reduce the value of Dick Tracy as a strip based on his ridicule. Like he had a lot of power. It was kind of evil, but fascinating. Do you think that hurt Tracy? Yeah, I think so. Dick Tracy was never out selling wild root cream oil hair. I think of him as radically different. Dick Tracy's one of my favorite strips too. For sure, me too. Surreal. And I actually, I like the classic stuff, but I like the stuff that's like the oddball comic stuff too. Like the 50s Dick Tracy then or what? Where it was like he was trying to be contemporary, but it just looked like he was losing his mind. The pouch is my all-time weird. That should be an underground comic. 
face. Yeah, you know, no, I won't go into it, but no. <laughs> yeah, I love the Tracy stuff. I love the 30s stuff and the blank and all that. And I could actually keep reading Chester Gould. I could just read that for a couple of years and I'd be fine. By the way, if there's anybody out there that wants to sell about the first half of those IDW books, I just finally bought a set and half of them got lost in the mail. Oh, no. Yes, I am absolutely despondent, except I finally now have all the ones that I haven't reread. I bought those mainly because I thought now I can get rid of all those black foreign ones and all the other stuff. I mean, it's take, now I'm at the part where I got to try to make room. So. But yeah, the early stuff's pretty interesting because you have references to the Lindbergh baby in one continuity. You have like a J. Edgar Hoover type guy in a couple of them. Oh, it's straighter and based on reality. I once asked Ann Wilson, I said, I love your stuff, but I can't figure out who was your inspiration. He goes, oh, Chester Gould. Oh, of course. It makes sense when you say it. Yeah. I said, oh, you only were looking at the villains, huh? He goes, not really. (laughs) And I just love how horrible things happen to the bad guys. Like, there's one really horrible person, and then, like, a bear eats them in the forest. My favorite, I forget who it is, but they're trapped under something that is blocked by a cake of ice and there's a big nail through this beam and it's like here not going in with eye but it's like here and he must have spent six weeks having this ice cube melt and it's like nobody could get away with that now i mean it is so intentionally creepy it is yeah that's why i love it you ever heard the story about r crumb and jay lynch going to visit him no because they were both hippies, but they like, you know, I mean, whether you're a hippie or not, if you like comics, they're going to talk to the most serious right-wing guy. If you like his comics, suddenly you're his pal, right? But he didn't see them as his pals. And I think it was Jay asked him, he says, something about in your comics, because everybody is drawn kind of grotesquely, how do we know which ones are the good guys and bad guys? And he said that Gould really shot him a look like he wanted him to die. And he said, if you don't know the difference between the good guys and the bad guys, you're one of the bad guys. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And, and you know, he had this fake graveyard behind his house. They were worried they were going to wind up there. He made little cardboard tombs and had all the bad guys' names on it that he killed them. (laughs) so he wasn't exactly king of sanity either (laughs) that's funny yeah he had a fury going on in there that's interesting that's good insight but you know nobody draws like him I mean the interior of a car the seats are like 20 feet wide you know I mean I just love the way his stuff looks I love when the blank is killing people and it's a different way every time that he kills another criminal. Like he ties a guy under a car, closes the garage and let the carbon monoxide kill him, right? Throws another guy out of an airplane, crashes into a farm. It's like, and then another guy, he shoves out a moving car. He's rolling, his neck breaks on the pole. <laughs> it's like, what? He spent an awful lot, too much time thinking about how to kill people. And I think it affected his judgment. <laughs> I can't do that one again. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Better come up with something new. Yeah. Uh, That's great. We could easily chat all day. And I had a great time. But I'm going to do a little closeout conclusion, if that's all right with you guys. Absolutely. But thank you, Jim. And thank you both. And this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for 
let me run my mouth. Oh, we had a blast. This was great. And you're multi-talented. It's interesting because you've worked in various media, but it all comes with that same cartoon creative spirit. And I see why you have so many different awards in all sorts of variety of things because it just comes down to wanting to do something new and different each time. And I'm thrilled that I grew up on a lot of the stuff that you made, the cartoons, the commercials, they were huge influences on me. So thanks so much for being here today. And I like you much more than any of Willoughby's other friends, I got to say. Okay. Well, I'm sure they all drive you crazy, but... (laughs) Well, I can talk comics with you. None of them read comics, unfortunately. And they call Jim Grandpa. It's not really fair. (laughs) That is not remotely funny. I had my son when he was young, too, and it was weird going to PTA meetings and all their parents were like kids to me. It was strange. Anyway, thank you both. I hope we see each other at Comic Fest next year. If you can come out, that may be the first show I might be willing to go to if things have calmed down by then. I'm so glad we went last year because it was it was a way to say goodbye to so many. We didn't know we weren't going to see people or friends for a long time. You leave that show with a smile on your face every time. Yeah, that's what happened. This has been another episode of the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Thanks again, Scott Shaw, for your creative contributions to Americana, as well as being a guest on our show. Thank you very much. I didn't know if I was supposed to say anything or not. (laughs) I never know that either. Should I say goodbye? (laughs) I love it. They say communication and clarity. I'm good at both. All right. Take care, everybody.